In this episode of the Evidence-Based Education podcast, our Director of Education, Stuart Keim, is speaking to Professors Anne Cleary and Matt Rhodes at Colorado State University in the USA. Unfortunately, we had a couple of technical difficulties with the first minute or two of the recording, so we'll pick up the conversation when Anne and Matt are talking about their new book, A Guide to Effective Studying and Learning, Practical Strategies from the Science of Learning. within that all-encompassing term. And so for us, we're cognitive psychologists. We study uh, basic human learning and memory processes. And so I, mean, I would add, I mean, we care enough about this that in the book, we, we actually define science. We have an entire chapter walking people through science and what we really mean by the science of learning and what kind of methods cognitive psychologists such as Anne and I use. And I realize this isn't the philosophy of science podcast, but again, think about a science <laughs> perspective is again, we're going to start with some kind of, we're going to try to organize data into some kind of theory. From that theory, we're going to make clear and specific predictions. So um, it's helpful to make connections with information. A prediction might be so if you ask people to ask specific questions while they read, so in collaborative interrogation, we would predict that would result in better learning outcomes and say allowing people to read when left to their own devices. We're going to construct some kind of experiment to verify this or disconfirm it. And then we're going to look at those data and see whether it matches with our theory and hypotheses and adjust from there. And so that's really our interest in this book is to sift through those kind of approaches to learning where people have a theory, we've specified our hypotheses, we've tested them. And so from those approaches, what can we learn about most effective methods? of retaining information, of having the durable learning we're talking about. And so the book is very much grounded in that. And we, again, we think it's so important. We, we even have a standalone chapter on what science is and how this blends into learning and how this blends into a lot of other areas of life. Mm. So I, I've, I've got a um, maybe an unanswerable question for you, but, um, you know, I, I, I have a, a visiting professorship at uh, the University of Tübingen in Germany. And when I go there, um, you know, I'm referred to as a, a, you know, a scientist, a kind of um, an educational scientist or a learning scientist or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, back, back here in the UK, I think I'd be very cautious about referring to myself in that way for fear of, uh, you know, the, the kind of um, wry smiles that people might have at, you know, su- such a term. Um, you know, what in, in the United States, and obviously, you know, it's a huge, huge country, but um you know what what, what's the kind of perception of this idea of you know learning as a science and you know uh, and and people uh having you know roles in universities or or elsewhere as kind of learning scientists be they in you know in these fields of you know cognitive psychology as you're working or elsewhere but you know does 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 there is there a broad appeal to this notion of it being uh you know something um you know a scientific endeavor You know, that's an excellent question, um, because I I think that was actually this idea that people don't necessarily appreciate that that you can study learning from a scientific approach. That was actually a, a motivator for us in offering our course on the science of learning and in developing this textbook. Um... So, uh, uh, you know, I can give some anecdotes on my, from, from my own experience uh, on my own uh, campus mm. uh, and, and on other college campuses 
of you know faculty, including scientists in other research realms, suggesting that learning itself is intuitive. Um, you know, I often get that question from people, um, including people with PhDs in other realms who uh, who are themselves perhaps scientists. Uh, questions suggesting, well, why would you need a book on the science of learning, or why would you need a science of learning when when learning itself is intuitive, isn't it? And and my answer to that is is always, well, no, actually, learning isn't intuitive. There are many counterintuitive uh, 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 aspects to learning, and many instances that have been demonstrated empirically in which people's impressions and intuitions about learning are are actually in in opposition to to what actually helps their learning. And so, so no, learning isn't intuitive. But I think the pervasive belief that learning is intuitive perhaps contributes to the perception that, that there isn't a need for scientific investigation uh, of learning. And so, so I think your question is an, ex is an excellent question. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add. Well, I mean, we actually have some data. So with uh, one of my former students, we surveyed, we tried to get as many instructors as we could at the university to take a little survey about their knowledge of learning. And we also, we compared them to a group of students. And so the, the real findings from that, again, people do know some things about learning. That's not the argument I'm making. But their, their knowledge is imperfect. They endorse a number of beliefs that are really at odds with the literature. And one thing we found is instructors really don't look any different than students. So their knowledge, so it comes very much to an end of saying people have this impression. And what, I mean, we have access to our memory all the time. So we're probably assuming we know our memory really well. And it turns out memory is a little more complicated than what we get from our day-to-day -day access from it. It's a little more complicated to understand how learning works. And so I think people are often vastly overestimating what they understand about learning. And so our impression or the way we should be approaching this is to take a science-based approach. So, okay, you think X is important for learning. You think learning is just based on, we should just tell students to spend more time. Okay, well, let's run the experiments. Does that actually change learning outcomes? I mean, mm. if you allow me to also add my own anecdote, I was once in a meeting in another department that that is probably more, I'm not gonna name the department, probably more likely to be considered the real, the quote unquote real scientists on campus. And one of the internationally renowned faculty in that department confided to me, you know, we could solve all of educational problems by just giving students a midterm and a final and telling them those are really important tests. And they'll study well and they'll learn the information. And the data, of course, are that would be one of the worst things you could do. So if you do a midterm and a final, and that's all that happens in the course, students are going to do nothing for most of the course and then frantically study right before those exams. They're not going to experience durable learning. In fact, they're going to hate the class. They're not really going to walk away with that knowledge, with that understanding. And this is somebody, again, who's an eminent scientist in his or her field. Sorry, I'm trying to remove any identifying. <laughs> but that was her very strong, sincere conviction. And so this all goes back to Anne's point. It's not intuitive. And so we need this science-based approach. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that um, I think is, is kind of um, bounding around in the you know in, on Twitter and elsewhere you know um, this 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 kind of sense that uh, as we learn more about human memory um, maybe one of the things that we need to think about is that perhaps we don't actually know ourselves quite as well as we might think we do uh, but one way of of um, increasing an understanding of our own uh, capacity for you know for learning for memory and such like is through study and through scientific study um, but you also maybe think there about the you know the kind of uh, the role of of an expert and how often um, I kind of have this this sort of working scale in my mind that the the further along 
a kind of ap- academic career you go the more eminent you become, the more internationally acclaimed you become, um, you, the, the kind of more likely you are to uh, have very little idea about the fundamentals of the very thing that you've become expert in, <laughs> because you've you've gone so far down the track that, you know, when it comes to explaining and, and you know, I guess that's the art of a really, really great teacher uh, that they you know, hold, uh, you know, simultaneously deep, deep expertise, but also, uh, you know, in, the, in their subject area, but deep expertise in the ability to explain, uh, you know, uh, kind of fundamental uh things in you know that are to them you know pretty simple and you know they haven't really thought about consciously for some time but in a way that makes sense to a novice um and and i guess you know understanding more about that and 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 not adopting that kind of um uh well i was going to say arrogant uh, approach but you know maybe that's just my point of view and and not yours but you know a, a sense that there is something that we could learn about learning um and and use that to to you know make more um kind of uh, constructive decisions in the classroom i think you know it sounds pretty good to me um okay so so well let's let's kind of move on to then you know continue this theme of um science uh, science of learning and Let's kind of um, hop over from your own field, uh, your own specific area in uh, cognitive psychology um, into something that uh, is often kind of uh, connected to cognitive psychology, certainly when it comes to classroom practice and people's understanding of, you know, evidence based techniques in the classroom. And that's um, neuroscience. And and I've heard you know people talk about education neuroscience, um, but let's let's kind of keep it broadly in this field of, of neuroscientific findings. Uh, and my question for you really is, is um, do you think that neuroscience, as it stands right now uh, as a field, has um, lessons for classroom practice? Uh, and, and if so, well, what are they? So and I don't know if Anne shares this opinion, but um, if important lessons from neuroscience exist for classroom practice, I'm just not aware of them. So the issue for me is think about what we really need. So Neuroscientists are, are really trying to understand behavior at the molecular level, at the cellular level. And to me, what we really have going on here is how do we then translate those insights from the molecular level all the way up to, and now what should I tell my students to do prepare, to prepare for their exam? So for example, I, I've had this experience, I've run into teachers who tell me they're attempting to learn as much as they can about the brain. And I always say, that sounds fantastic. So I, it sounds an endlessly fascinating, but I'm not entirely sure if that's going to be giving you an advantage in the classroom. And so I think at this point in time, we both have quite a bit to discover. And there's this gap. I mean, if you let me, Alan Baddeley, so the, the eminent researcher Alan Baddeley has this really, one of his books has a really fun analogy. I think he talks about looking at St. Paul's Cathedral. So there's all kinds of different levels of analysis you can engage in. So you could think about, for example, um, the bricks and the atomic structure of the bricks and the atomic structure of the bricks is undoubtedly important. St. Paul's would fall down if the atomic structure of the bricks was somehow deficient. But you could also think about the design of St. Paul's Cathedral, the architecture. By the way, it's Sir Christopher Wren, if I remember correctly, who did St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, So... In other words, I, I think of memory in the same way. So we're really, I, I think of my own work as attempting to understand the design, of the, not the atomic structure, but the design of the system. And I feel like I can give you much better advice from that perspective. So both of these are different levels of analysis. Both are important. You can't have one without the other. But at this point in time, uh, I myself don't see any important lessons coming 
from neuroscience that can be directly applied within the classroom. I don't know if Anne, we haven't sort of talked about, I don't know if Anne has a different perspective on this or how no, you No, I, I think you've captured that well. And I'll, I'll just add that from, from my own perspective, I believe that, that studying learning from a neuroscience perspective aids in our having a full un scientific understanding of learning at these various levels that Matt uh, just talked about. Uh, so I think neuroscience is, is a key part of our scientific progress and scientific understanding, but it mainly, uh, in my view, helps us to get at the why and how behind or underlying uh, effective learning strategies, uh, as opposed to being necessary for people to, to know about uh, for effective implementation. And yeah. so I guess what I'm saying is that while there's obviously a neural basis to every effective learning strategy, it's not necessary, in my opinion, for a learner to know about the neural mechanisms in order to effectively apply these strategies. So we know from scientific data uh, that certain strategies are effective, and that should be enough for effective implementation. That said, you know, neuroscience really can give us, for those who are interested in science or for curious about the why and how and the, and the underlying mechanisms, neuroscience often does offer some very interesting insights uh, into the why and how. And, and one example I can give is the use of imagery. Um, so one of the things, one of the chapters that we uh, have in our book is devoted to the topic of imagery in learning. And one of the strategies that's useful, particularly in skill acquisition of any sort, is imagery, basically imagining yourself performing or practicing at that skill. Uh, so, for example, um, in athletics, uh, imagery or, or imagining performance and playing a sport is a widely known effective strategy for enhancing um, athletic performance. So if you're a soccer player, uh, it, it's, it's very helpful to continue to practice at the game of soccer. But in between practices, it's also very effective to imagine vividly practicing the game of soccer and imagine the moves vividly. Um, I'm currently taking piano lessons, and I've found that when I'm traveling and I cannot practice, it's still effective for me to imagine practicing as if I'm playing. Just in my mind's eye, imagine that I'm playing the current song that I'm trying to work on. And the abundance of research suggests that such imagination is very effective for learning. Well, what neuroscience has offered in terms of an explanation is that uh, if you look at the, neuro the neuroscience literature on this, what seems to be happening in people's brains during imagination is that the same areas that are involved in the actual actions themselves, such as playing the piano, are, are basically re-engaged or engaged when imagining that action. So if I'm imagining playing the piano, I'm engaging the same brain regions or many of the same brain regions that I would be engaging if I were to actually play the piano. And that's thought to be an underlying neural basis for why imagination helps learning and skill acquisition. So that's just one example of how neuroscience can help um, aid our understanding of the why and how behind it. But note that for imagination to be an effective tool, say you're a soccer player and you want to use this strategy to improve your performance, it's not necessary to know the underlying neural mechanism in order to be able to apply it. 
Mm. So, so the, what you're saying then is that neuroscience does have, uh, you know, something to offer for cl- classroom practice, uh, and and that you know, as a, as a field, we're probably in for some really interesting things in the years to come. But then, you know, a, a kind of an understanding of the 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 kind of the, the brain per se and and you know how it works and what have you doesn't necessarily give us uh you know a kind of advantage in the classroom is that fair yes i think that's a, i think it's well phrased i'm good at that you know <laughs> honestly <laughs> actually i'm really not i'm 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 noted for being overly wordy most of the time and uh although one of the best best things that um i was uh, ever given as a kind of um uh, a, a kind of quote about me was that i was wordy but coherent uh, and i'll take i'll take that any day that was uh, in fact if she's listening that was uh, cat's gut at the chartered college of teaching uh wordy but coherent is pretty much as, uh, is as good as it gets for me um <laughs> Okay, so um, you know you talk, you talk there a lot about what we what we know from um, you know from neuroscientific findings from findings from cognitive psychology. So I, I want to just probe around that that word no, um, and and really whether you know the, the, whether knowing is is different from, from understanding. So we talk a lot, you know, and in certainly over here in the UK we have. Um, a curriculum that people talk about in, in many ways in, in lots of schools as, as you know they have a knowledge based curriculum a, a knowledge rich curriculum and things like that but then we'll also talk about you know um, kind of different uh, frameworks for thinking that might say okay well you need to know some stuff but you need to understand some things um, uh, or you know an, another cognitive skills application evaluation whatever they might be so my question to you as to uh, cognitive psychologists um, is how is knowing different to understanding how is knowing something different to really kind of you know this this idea of understanding it what's the difference between them it, it's a good question to ask because it's a really difficult distinction to make. So one way you might consider it is we always think about, again, durable knowledge. So knowledge that you have over time and knowledge that you're able to use, to adapt, to make novel connections to. So let's let's think of it this way. So imagine this. So uh, imagine you're in a human physiology class and you're learning about the circulatory system. And so you also you learn a number of facts about, say, the heart and the lungs, so how much blood the heart pumps, the capacity of the lungs. So you might say that you know those facts, but of course that, that knowledge in itself isn't particularly useful unless you can then make the connections to understand how the heart and the lungs work together to help oxygenate and circulate blood throughout the body. And so that's really, so we're thinking the, the strategies we talk about in the book and the way we really think about understanding is getting beyond simply knowing, I know some things about the heart, but having durable learning that you can take forward with you and would allow you to, for example, understand how that system works, understand how to make unique insights. So for example, if we know something about the heart's circulatory system, would this tell us anything about how to make, say, water flow better through some kind of engineered system? I don't, I don't know if that analogy actually works, but <laughs> that's really that's really how we think about understanding versus knowing. And our, I mean, I always tell the students in the class. I mean, in some ways, I, I actually don't care how you do in my class. My goal is that you walk away from this class and the things you've learned, say, in our class, we teach you study skills, changes your behavior changes your understanding and your approach to how you do your learning and that 
that's really I realized by the way I've just used I just said understanding to define <laughs> understanding, but but what I'm really thinking about is again can you take this knowledge forward and make novel connections and understand that knowledge within a broader system yeah. and, and I guess another way to put it might be knowing uh, might be thought of as having acquired factual knowledge that is important uh, for application later on, whereas understanding is more of a, a grasp of something complicated for the first time. <clears throat> so, because I, I sometimes think about, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the the infamous, I and mean, let's call it infamous, Bloom's taxonomy, uh, represented as a like as a pyramid. Have you? Is this something you have you seen? Are you familiar with this idea of Bloom's taxonomy? Well, I don't think you're allowed to be in education without being exposed. Okay, just but checking. It's, just yeah, checking. It's, it's in the contract. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and and as far as I I can determine from conversations that I have with people, it's basically like you know, it's it's sort of number one like theory of how people think and and a kind of framework for thinking and things like that. Despite the fact that you know, as I keep on reminding people, other frameworks are available. Um, <laughs> and in fact, there's a fantastic book. Uh, I know this is. a podcast about your book but there's a great book um that was written by oh crikey uh, so steve steve higgins was one of the authors but i can't and i can't remember the rest of it but it, it's it's uh, it's called frameworks for thinking and in this in this book it, it talks you know th through a whole range of different frameworks for thinking that are applicable to you know different subjects different kind of domains and so on and so on but one of the things that um you know that this this kind of obsession with Bloom's taxonomy has has led to is that, that that kind of representation of it as a pyramid and I might have got this wrong so I'd be keen on 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 knowing from you is that that pyramid always kind of puts like you know knowledge at the bottom and then you kind of go up the hierarchy and then it's like understanding and uh, application synthesis and and you know eventually ending up with kind of creation I think comes at the top. Uh, but then I think I've read things that say, well, maybe it's not a pyramid, maybe knowledge sits there right at the bottom as this kind of grounding thing. And then um, you've kind of got like, uh, you know, columns on top of that. You know, so this horizontal thing lying flat on its side, knowledge and then um, vertical columns stood on top of knowledge. Each one kind of, uh, you know, the of, of the same sort of stature and magnitude, if you like. Um, but the way that I kind of think about the relationship between knowing and understanding sometimes, and maybe I'm wrong on this, um, is that if you've understood something, then you can probably kind of do something with that knowledge that it, it becomes, you know, in that in that sort of um, kind of component of learning that's about not just retaining stuff, but then being able to, you know, transfer it, that you're starting to get into that world of transfer as you as you utilize that knowledge maybe i'm just completely wide of the mark there what do you think no i i like this perspective i mean i so again i, I think we should see all of this the, the bloom's taxonomy it's not intended to be a stage model but it almost seems like a stage model first you must have x so you must have knowledge and then you can move on to thinking of unique examples and then synthesis so I, I'm always sort of wary of those kind of stage models. I, I actually like to think of knowledge and understanding as almost in sort of a circular interdependency. So I need to know something about the lungs and the heart to begin to really understand the system. And by virtue of having better understanding, it'll actually change how I acquire knowledge. So for example, one thing we know is experts are phenomenal at acquiring new knowledge in their field because they have this deep understanding, this elaborate framework, 
and they can easily slot this information in. So, so you and I both are. It sounds like into football, you could probably give an entire history of Sunderland. And I bet you, would, you very easily, as they make new signings, as they have transfers go out, you probably very easily integrate that new knowledge. And then you take that knowledge into a broader understanding of, so will this change Sunderland tactically? How will they, now that they have a faster winger, are they going to actually, are they going to be crossing more? Are yeah, they going to yeah. have more? So again, I think of this as sort of in a circular framework where knowledge can beget understanding and having enhanced understanding changes the degree to which the kinds of knowledge you acquire, which therefore also influences understanding. So I, I think of all of this in sort of that in, in an interdependent relationship like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I agree with Matt, and I'll just add a little bit to what Matt just said in pointing out that that no new ideas, to kind of speak to the point about creativity and producing new ideas, no new ideas ever come from out of nowhere, if you think about it. It's always about making some connection between existing bits of information that are already in your knowledge base. Um, we're always tethered to, to what we already know uh, in that regard. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a reason why analogy can be a very powerful tool for understanding or achieving insight into something novel, um, because it allows us to continue to be tethered in something that we already do know and understand, yet yeah. make a leap into, into mm -hmm. a novel realm. Um, and that is something that, that we talk about quite a bit uh, in our book as well, in our chapter on understanding. Yeah, and, and you cover a huge amount of ground in, in the book. Um, and also, I, I have to say, I really like the the kind of the format of it. I like the fact that it's a book that sort of um, it, it walks the walk as well as talks the talk. In, in that you're you know using uh, you know some of the strategies that you're talking about, like the elaborative interrogation thing that we talked about earlier. That you're using that in 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 the book. Um, and, and one of the things that you talk about is um, this idea of spacing and and as as a kind of concept that's something that i think is becoming more and more kind of commonplace for teachers and school leaders to talk about but um oftentimes it causes real kind of trouble in um uh, in the sense of just understanding well exactly uh, what does it mean uh, and what and then what does it look like in practice um so i wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what what spacing is sort of define the term uh, but then also kind of talk about how it helps learners learn so and and really with a view to thinking you know if, if um if i'm a teacher and i and i think this might be a good thing well you know how can i optimize it how can i make best use out of this this tool uh, to, to improve learning for, for my students? Well, I guess I'll, I'll start by defining spacing. Spacing is essentially distributing out your attempts at learning across time. And so ideally, you want to distribute your attempts across days. Uh, maybe even weeks, uh, rather than, than throughout a day, though you can certainly distribute your attempts at learning throughout a day as well, and, and that such distribution is still generally more effective than simply trying to study in one continuous session. Um, as far as, as, as how spacing helps people learn, there are probably a number of reasons for its effectiveness. Um, it's, it's probably not necessary to know all of the reasons in order to effectively implement uh, spacing as a strategy. It's known to be a very effective strategy. But, but to give some examples of, of reasons why spacing is thought to be effective, uh, if you're distributing your studying and your attempts across days, you're getting episodes of sleep in between each attempt. 
And we know that sleep plays a critical role in learning, that the, while it feels like you're doing nothing during sleep, and it may even feel like a waste of time, your brain is actually doing a lot of work while you're asleep to help solidify new knowledge and make new connections. And so sleep is actually a very critical component of effective learning, which is probably one of the reasons why spacing is as effective as it is. But there are other likely contributing factors, such as um, reducing mental fatigue. Anytime you take a break or or step away from a cognitive activity you're giving your mind a break and those particular neural networks a break uh, from having to engage in that particular task so that when you revisit that task at a later time you're now fresh um, you've escaped any fatigue um, you've potentially escaped any wrong mindset that that might have been activated in response to what you were thinking about at the time which can sometimes interfere with necessary insights or access to relevant relevant knowledge. And so every time you come at it fresh, uh, you're potentially allowing your mind to make some new insights and new connections that you might not have had uh, on the previous attempt. You're also potentially changing your context every time you revisit the information, especially if you're uh, spacing out and distributing your, your studying across days, presumably your context is going to be changing even if only slightly. For example, you're not going to be wearing the same clothes the next day, presumably, or um, maybe you're not even in the same location. Maybe on day one you were in a coffee shop when attempting to study, but on day two you're in a library when attempting to study, and now you've actually changed your physical context. Well, that, that changing of context is thought to benefit learning as well. So there's, and Andrew, there's, there's essentially as many theories of spacing as there are days of the week. And so, um, <laughs> so Anne, Anne is very much right that it, in some ways it, it, it probably, as long as you do the spacing, you're going to be fine. Like I, so, so one thing I tell my students all the time is I, I would rather you do 45 minutes of high quality learning and step away and take a break then do a marathon session of two to four hours. And uh, at least in the U.S. at the university, there are all these sort of strange social norms that seem to encourage the very opposite of spacing. As one of my favorite examples is at the end of the semester, the students often have fairly intensive final exams. And by the way, I'll, I'm going to give some suggestions too, but one thing we should always be doing in all our classes are giving students cumulative finals to get those benefits of spacing. But Oftentimes the university makes a point to advertise how the library will be open till two or three in the morning. And that's <laughs> you're just you're just encouraging the students to stay up all night. They're gonna they're not gonna get the benefits of the sleep. They're gonna be exhausted. They're gonna do marathon sessions. This is all terrible for learning. Yeah. yeah. So what, the library is gonna close early during final exam week is what we should tell them. Sorry, Stuart. No, no, no. It's uh, I, so when you say give cumulative finals, um, what do you mean? Because that, to, that, I think that's got a, um, maybe that's a, a sort of a U.S. term. I don't understand oh, what. Apologies. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's uh, let's let's translate. Well, how about I'll, I'll talk a few ways that you can integrate spacing in the classroom. Yeah, so yeah, no, do. I just mentioned. Um, so Anne and I think do this in our courses. So at the end of the semester they receive an exam that covers elements from all periods of the course. So there'll be questions from the first week of the course all the way to the end. And so to prepare for the final, you need to go through the entire, all the material in the course once more. So in other words, wait, what we don't want to do are have courses where, it's, and it's very common, a lot of the courses I took as an undergraduate, we would have 
focused discussions, say, oh, on cell division and cell division mattered, but we really didn't talk about it intensely for the rest mm. of the course. So we tend to have everything in our courses almost as modules. We cover the module and then we move on and never touch that material again. And one very simple way to ensure that students go back to material are to give them exams that integrate all material from a course. I'll give you a, a few other ways you can integrate spacing. Uh, one thing I often do in my own courses for the first five or 10 minutes is I will often start the course and I'll just throw questions at the students covering material from anywhere from two weeks ago to a month ago. So I'll just simply throw a concept out there and say, what do you remember this? Let's talk through this concept. So again, I'm trying to expose them to the concept. Other simple things, so we, uh, one of their best practice we can be engaging in is to frequently give our students low stakes quizzes, really to give them feedback on their knowledge. And so, I, so for example, in my own classes, I do a quiz every class or two. And so one thing I tell the students is I always put what I call a wildcard question in the quiz. So they'll get quizzes on information that's fairly recent, but I'm always gonna put one question in there from some other random point in the course. And if you wanna be prepared for the quizzes, you should be in the habit of reviewing the entire course fairly frequently. And so that's one way to do it. And I'll give you another one. Teachers frequently use what are called exit tickets. At least this is a, a practice that's yeah. common in the US. So we, we give the students a quiz at the end of class. and But often that quiz is on the material that they just talked about in class. So what you're really gonna be getting is you're gonna be getting information on the material that's sort of most accessible online. A different way you could do your exit ticket is, sure, you could ask about what you covered that day, but your exit ticket could also be covering information they had, say, two to four weeks ago. This will give them spaced exposure to the information and also give you some feedback on information you might cover in class. And again, there are many, many ways you could integrate spacing. I don't know if Anne has other ideas for, for what she might do in a classroom setting to integrate spacing. Um, well, I like to, to start with um, a question about previous material, um, uh, do a brief review. Um, some of these Matt has probably already mentioned, but um, in my class, I try to tie new topics back to old topics. Mm -hmm. And this allows for two things. It allows for, for spacing because because you're getting some spaced repetition of older concepts from the class, but, but also it's enabling um, connectivity, making connections between ideas and integrative uh, learning, integrating mm -hmm. uh, knowledge across topics. Um, and so also I'll point out that our book does this as well. And so you mentioned earlier, yeah. Stuart, that, that we walk the walk in the book. And this is another way that we're doing that, that we're, we try to revisit older topics in the book as we uh, present new topics so that we're, we're interweaving spacing throughout uh, the textbook in that way. Yeah, yeah, and and I, you made me think there that um, with with that idea of um, uh, of, of the t kind of timing of you know questions like exit tickets, for instance, um, you know I I I sometimes find myself um, trying to, to to define for people a distinction between uh, you know what I guess in cognitive psychology is is you know defined as like performance uh, or or you know to kind of um, termed performance and learning as these kind of two different things of one associated with you know what's happening during the process of instruction and the kind of uh, you know r related to uh, short-term memory and, and and what have you in working memory and then learning as this you know, uh, durable, retained, transferable 
stuff um and it just made me think there that actually you could sort of make plans to say well you know these are these are both important kind of aspects of a student's um you know learning process if you like and so why not say well you know sometimes i am asking uh, you know i'm using an exit ticket but it's an exit ticket that, that is for the purpose of looking at performance whereas actually on a different day uh, i've got an exit t- ticket that's that's trying to tap into uh, that longer term, you know, more durable thing that we might call learning and 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 sort of and have a clear kind of distinction in your mind about the, you know, what you're actually trying to target in those in those areas. Um, and that, that might be quite a useful thing for for teachers so that you don't end up kind of confusing yourself and just saying, well, because I'm doing an exit ticket, I'm actually, you know, I'm tracking students learning and things like that. You know, and some some days you may well be doing that. Uh, but on others, you may actually just be kind of saying, well, are they, you know, uh, are they getting it currently? Is the performance in line with what I would hope to see at this point, but not confusing that for that durable kind of long term learning? Does that sound like a sensible thing or am I just kind of coming up with utter nonsense? No, actually, uh, I thought you phrased it perfectly. And you can think just as you said, Stuart, you can think of performance as can you get to the information now? Learning is really what we mean by changes in knowledge that are retained over time. Can you get to that information at some later point in time? And so what I really like in your phrasing right there is I often see people talking about exit exit tickets strictly in terms of learning. And what I really like in your phrasing is you're saying, no, no, you should take a step back. What is your goal? Is your goal, I just want to make sure we went over the Pythagorean theorem in class today. The students can at least tell me what the Pythagorean theorem is before we walk out, um, which will be performance. And now, maybe two classes from now, I'll end class by saying, and walk me through the Pythagorean theorem, and that's going to give me a better sense of whether learning has occurred. And so I, yeah. I really like this idea of being, be aware of your goals, and remember that performance does not equate to learning. So one thing we get from our students is they'll frequently, like, I'll have students say, I don't get it. I sat there and stared and read my notes over and over last night, and yet I didn't do well in the exam. And of course, the problem is, all they've had is an elevation in performance but probably no real underlying change in learning. Right, and and this is why assessing the later learning is so important because sometimes these things are even at odds. And this ties back to the the Mm -hmm. basic idea that learning is not intuitive and that we're often thrown off by our initial impressions. This holds for instructors as well. So one study that I can think of, for example, is a study of of math performance or learning uh, to solve types of math problems. In this particular study, over the short term, Students actually appear as if they're performing better if the types of problems are presented in a blocked format, such that students get one type of problem, such as uh, uh, compute the volume of a sphere um, versus uh, uh, another type of problem, um, maybe a wedge. Uh, if they get all of one type of problem, so several different examples of one type of problem in a block before getting examples of another type of problem, they appear to be performing better over the short term. Mm. And notice how that might that might lead an instructor and the student to believe that blocking is the most effective uh, format for presenting math problems. Well, if you look at longer term learning, so if you were to test, say, a week later, Students actually perform better if they had received a mixed format of problems, whereby 
they maybe receive one uh, sphere problem and then a wedge problem and then a cone problem and so on so that they're not receiving all of the types of a problem block together. That's an example of how learning can be counterintuitive and how the initial performance itself can sometimes be at odds with that longer term performance. Yeah, yeah, and we 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 run uh, a whole a whole series of, of different courses. We have uh, uh, something we call the assessment lead program, and something called assessment essentials. And both of these try and go back to those fundamentals of you know distinguishing between uh, you know short term performance, uh, you know that that stuff that's happening as you know during the acquisition phase, uh, you know during instruction and what have you. And then, uh, you know, uh, thinking about learning as, as something different, but also then tying in the kind of research evidence around assessment, which basically, I think, always comes back to this idea of, you know, a, a good assessment task always kind of begins with, you know, the purpose of it. What, it, what is it trying to target and why? Um, and I think in that sense, there's, a, there's quite a nice kind of marrying up between the sort of uh, the res research from, from assessment, the research from cognitive psychology here to help teachers say, OK, you know, well, what am I looking at as, as a broad distinction between two things? Is is this learning or is this performance? Can I can I kind of try and separate those things out? And then what is the you know the particular target of of my question? Um, so that then the kind of conclusions that they draw and that students draw actually are hopefully a little bit more accurate. Um, you know, and then we're not confusing ourselves because uh, you know at the end of a, a lesson or a week or whatever you do really well on you know like you say there on a on a set of questions that are basically on the same kind of problems that uh, that you've been covering that week, the same tasks, the same kind of topics and what have you, and that we then assume that because you could do it then, well that's you for the rest of your life. You've got it. You've nailed it. You know, which just doesn't stand to reason. I think. Okay, so um, I, I, let's let's kind of broaden the conversation out a little bit, and um, and I just want to kind of you know say for, you know I'm, I, we're we're in this privileged position of having two uh, great cognitive psychologists that here here um, talking to us. So from your own perspective, um, you know what areas of of research evidence in your own field of cognitive psychology do you think? Um, every teacher like literally every teacher should know about and you know what what are these right like really key threshold concepts that sh should be there and and in and you know i'm sure the list could be incredibly long so just like go for it Wh whatever you think sure um so i, I mean one answer is the, the book goes through that but i'll give you read the book I, i'll give you the what i would call the big two um so uh, we teach a study skills course and our running joke in the background is so we do an entire semester. We teach students to learn and how to apply. But our, our running joke in the background is we could do the course in just a few words, space and test. So that's really so I'll, I'll walk you through. So to me, the key points of evidence that everybody should know, and this is actually stuff that's been known for over a century, yeah. are twofold. Uh, so one, learning is much better, as and is defined before, when it's distributed over time. It's one of the very simplest things you can do. The benefits are shown in virtually any domain you can think of. So the same amount of time spread out leads to much better learning outcomes. So the more we can break up class, the more we can integrate, say, material from a few weeks ago, the better learning outcomes are. And so there's a, a really large research literature starting with one of the very original studies, Hermann Ebbinghaus, a very famous German researcher who studied himself and published 
a very famous treatise on memory in the mid 1880s shows the benefits of spacing and essentially the research after that is of course refined and extended but continues to show what Ebbinghaus knew in the 1880s that spreading our learning out is much better for learning outcomes than doing it all in small pockets of time in one unit of time. So yeah. we should be doing a lot of spacing. The other is we all seem to have a deep aversion to testing. In fact, when I talk with teachers, uh, I try not to use the word testing. Many memory researchers, instead of saying testing, we call it retrieval practice. And I find yeah. that makes it more palatable for a lot of folks. So there is tremendous evidence. Again, this is also something that's been known. You can There's a classic paper from 1917. There's another excellent paper from 1939 showing that students are much more likely to retain knowledge when we give them frequent chances to test on that knowledge. And there's quite a large research literature on it. There's some thinking about how to do the testing. So two, and so one way, I, I mean, I often try to think about with teachers, and as a much better phrasing than me. So when you, we shouldn't try to change behavior by approaching people and saying, you should get rid of everything you're doing. In fact, that's wrong, and people are doing a lot of great things. Our, my pitch is there are some small adjustments we can make to our instruction that can result in powerful outcomes. And two of those small adjustments are let's spread things out with space and let's give students more quizzes, more low stakes testing opportunities. Let's give them more chances to engage in retrieval practice. So those are two large literatures yeah. which have all kinds of evidence suggesting significant learning benefits. Yeah, and to, to state the phrase that Matt was referring to earlier, the phrase I use is downhill uh, change, that spacing and testing really enable what I call downhill changes, which are simple. If you think of the analogy of skiing, trying to ski uphill is very difficult. It's, it's, it's immensely challenging, whereas trying to ski downhill is, is very easy. You just point down and, and go. Uh, and so w when you really want to see change in education, I think a very effective strategy um, is to, to try to find small, simple ways, downhill changes that people can implement that don't require a course overhaul, right? No teacher and no instructor wants to have to prep a whole new course or completely overhaul uh, what they've been doing for years. And really, such overhaul isn't necessary. These are simple techniques that can be easily implemented in what I would call downhill types of changes. And I just have a couple of additions to what Matt said. I, I'd like to point out that spacing, while often studied in the context of memorization and memory research, is not just effective for remembering information. It certainly is. It's, it's very, very effective for remembering information, but it's not limited to that. It's also very effective for improving one's trajectory toward achieving eventual understanding of complex situations or achieving insight into a novel solution to a problem that one might be working on. So, um, so spacing out or distributing your attempts at trying to understand something difficult or trying to solve some problem that you haven't yet succeeded in solving, spacing is, is very effective for that as well. I think that's a key point. Mm -hmm. um, and one more thing I'll add is that if I were to, to additionally add what is another area of research evidence that, that every teacher should be aware of, I would say the research on analogy. Um, because analogy turns out to be such an important factor mm -hmm. for achieving understanding uh, and, and creative insight. And so, um, as I mentioned, we're always tethered to our existing knowledge. And no new ideas come from out of nowhere. And when we're attempting to understand something 
new that we don't yet already understand, um, it, it's very important that we're able to make connections with information that we already do understand. And teachers can help facilitate that um, by utilizing analogy to help reach people. Yeah. It's <laughs> When you when you talked about that there, you just made me think back um, uh, to it was an example of uh, Lee Shulman Lee talking uh, about pastrami. Do you know about this? Do you know I don't. I would love to hear. OK, so I was really hoping that you did know about it because I can <laughs> only remember that it was something to do with Lee Shulman and pastrami. But it was bare, I think he was kind of making uh, I, I'm going to completely mangle this now. Uh, but it was something about like uh, how the sort of. Uh, the the pastrami really good pastrami is like well marbled and then you have lots of layers to it and things like that and you just kind of keep laying them on and on and on and um you know i have no idea really where i'm going with this anymore but i just remember that if you if you google uh, lee shulman and pastrami uh, there's something good there um so it's definitely worth following up and i really wish that i I'd... but even i'm trying to think by the way as i reflect on the conversation we've had so far sorry to go a little meta here but um, oh, no, it's good. i i think ann and i have actually sprinkled in analogies through, i haven't thought about but yeah so yes. this idea of uh, i mean one way to think about it is an effective teacher is somebody who can create accessible analogies yeah. for their students to allow them to make those connections yeah and it's something i think that we that we know from the the literature on uh you know kind of uh, teacher effectiveness or teaching effectiveness um you know that that teachers who have good levels of content knowledge but then also pedagogical content knowledge well, one of those aspects of pedagogical pedagogical content knowledge it's a bit of a mouthful it, you know is knowing the kind of the the illusions the metaphors the uh, you know the, the those kind of ways of expressing things um that that help to make those connections and so it's you know in many ways it's not just knowing your subject but knowing uh, the kind of the, the the connectors for uh, pieces of information in your subject so that you can you know provide those to your students and i think that speaks to a really kind of complex and deep understanding not just of your subject but of the ability to teach your subject um which i think you know certainly for me you know i, I reflect on on 10 years as a classroom teacher I think that was, you know, th those are the things that really kind of uh, were threshold moments for me when I found those, you know, those illusions and those connections, those metaphors or whatever they were that helped me to explain um, to my students things in a, in a different way that, that sent them off on a slightly different tangent and provided a different perspective on things. Um, so, so, so we're talking about spacing things. We're talking about uh, testing things and we're talking about uh, you know f finding those those kind of illusions those connections that we can uh, you know to, to use to, to 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 help our students to kind of embed those things and achieve that that kind of ultimate goal of of, of durable learning I guess is that is that fair yes that sounds um, wordy but highly coherent so I okay, okay good yeah well, crikey I, I'm I'm pleased I'm going up like wordy but highly <laughs> coherent now like this is all going in a testimonial somewhere believe me i'm just quoting everything <laughs> here um okay so uh so i've got one, one last question for you um so you're you know you, you you've written this book this this i think a really really interesting book um uh, you know a, a, a guide to effective studying and learning uh, is, is I think a very prescient thing. It, you know, it's, it's certainly in uh, those those areas of the world where this this evidence thing, for want of a better term, seems to be taking off. You know, there's there there are connections being made between, uh, you know, the, the kind of broadly the worlds of academia 
uh, research and then classroom practice and also policy making. Um, and, and I think your book really contributes to that by helping to, uh, to cross some of those boundaries in a really, you know, neat and accessible way um, that, that is, you know, it's based on theory, but it's not theoretical. So my final question to you then is, is this, if you were um, the, the people in charge of the education system for your own country, um, and you could make any three changes, what would they be and why? So I would say the number one change that I would make is to teach students how to learn. Um, so when, when students come to, to our class on science of learning, after they complete the class, one of the most frequent comments that we hear from students is, why didn't anybody teach me this sooner? Why didn't I learn this in high school? Or why didn't I learn this uh, in elementary school? And so I think I think we should be teaching. We, we expect people to learn information, but we never actually teach people how to learn. For example, I can remember being in elementary school and getting a new list of vocabulary words every single week that I needed to memorize. I needed to memorize their spelling. I needed to memorize the definition. And I can still remember sitting at the dining room table in my parents' house just repeating out loud over and over the words followed by their definitions. And nobody ever told me, hey, that, that's really a very ineffective strategy, <laughs> yeah, not yeah. a good use of time. Mm -hmm. And no one in school ever said, here, here's, here's a good strategy that you could use to try to learn uh, these vocabulary words. It was just here, go learn them. And so if I could make one change, it would be, let's equip students with effective study strategies instead of expecting them to just go learn the information. Let's teach people how to learn. So that, I, I love that recommendation. That would be, in fact, I mean, you could sort of crystallize our book that way. I'll, I'll give you another. I mean, so I, I think about the work you do, Stuart. Uh, another thing I would love, if, if I was in control, I would ensure all trainee teacher programs have a very strong focus on science of learning. So we ensure that all of our instructors, all of our teachers um, come out of these programs from the get-go as learning experts at the pro and, and programs differ, by the way, I, I've talked with a lot of teachers. Um, in fact, by the way, many teachers I, I've talked with in the States, uh, one of the complaints they've given me is I had lots of training on how to work within a curriculum. I had lots of training on things like classroom management. But to be honest, my, my program did not tell me much about the nuts and bolts, the, prin the basic principles of learning. And so this is one thing I would like to see widely implemented that um, high quality instruction in the science of learning be part of every uh, trainee teacher program. Okay. And then if, if I could give you a third, I'm actually going to piggyback on something from Anne. We've talked about this a lot. So Anne, Anne actually is really an expert on the literature on the influence of sleep on learning. If I had a, I tell my students this all the time. So I always tell my students, if I had a magic wand, I would do two things. One, um, I would make I, I would give you all as much money as you possibly needed for your tuition. I, I, I wish I could get rid of all the financial needs stuff. But two, if I could make sure all of you got more sleep, I think we would actually see dramatic changes in learning outcomes. I know it sounds odd, but um, more sleep 
it's one of the simplest things we could be doing. And so actually locally here in, in Fort Collins, where where we're located, our, our local school system has just pushed back the start time of school uh, to start later, I think with the idea being to allow students to achieve more sleep. And, and I support that. I think that's very important because sleep is such a critical component of effective learning. We need to make sure that students are getting enough sleep. <clears throat> So we need to include, uh, we need to teach our, our, our students how to learn. We need to teach our teachers about the science of learning, and we need to make sure we get enough sleep. I think yes. those those sound like some uh, incredibly sensible um, and and crucially evidence-based recommendations. And uh, you know, and and I think you know, listening listening to those recommendations and and to everything else that you've said in this podcast, but also in reading your book. I think there's um, I'm filled with actually with optimism because, uh, you know, I'm starting to see more and more, um, you know, researchers like yourselves trying to do this kind of stuff and to to, you know, pick up the the, the baton of, um, you know, things like you say that we've known for in some cases for, you know, over a century. And then to say, well, maybe that stuff could actually be useful if we do something different with it, something other than. Uh, you know, letting it languish behind, you know, a, a paywall in a journal or, um, you know, or, or simply keeping it within the walls of, of, of academia. Let's do something else with it. Um, and then to, to turn it into something productive that engages, you know, both our students and our teachers um, in actually the endeavor that all of us are interested in, which is simply to help our students do a bit better, to know a bit more, um, to learn. Um, and I think that your book, A Guide to Effective Studying and Learning, is a real contribution to that endeavor. And, um, uh, you know, and it's out now. So, um, if, uh, you know, everybody should buy it. Everybody should across the world. Everybody should buy it. Um, I think it's a great book. And um, uh, and so I want to say thank you to you, um, to, to both of you, to to Anne Cleary, Matt Rhodes. Um, thanks ever so much for for joining us today, for talking to us um, about your new book, and for sharing some of your your insights uh, from your own field, from cognitive psychology, on on this really really interesting topic of of or topics of studying and learning. Um, and hopefully we'll get the opportunity to to speak to you again soon when um, when you write your next book. <laughs> no pressure. Thanks Thank ever so much. Yeah, thank you. It was our pleasure. 